So number one, the biggest sales strategy is do your people know they're getting value? And that's investing in training, investing in a methodology that will serve them, not just while they're with Domain or whatever company you're leading, but as long as they are in business, not even in sales, that they're going to become more marketable the more they work for you and the more they learn. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast, where we reimagine and redefine sales in a digital world. In this new series, we have absolutely scoured the world to bring you only the best of the very best. We will be working with each of the thought leaders to unpack all of their years of experience, their pearls of wisdom and nuggets of gold into bite-sized chunks that will enable you to redefine your sales. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast. My name is Abby White. I'm the CEO of Sales Redefined and your host for our podcast today. Today, we have got an awesome guest with us, which is John Fung, who is Chief Revenue Officer at Domain based out of Sydney here. And John was an amazing guest. I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about, of course, the usual topics, which is high performance sales and how people can be on their A game. But we also unpacked from some of John's experience of working for Uber, Google, now Domain, what are some of the common threads to those high growth companies? Um, what are some of the best sales strategies that he's seen in action? And we also talked about change, which I really enjoyed because I'm seeing a lot at the moment resistance to change. So I got John's take on how you can approach and navigate that path of change. So we had some really interesting topics there. And of course, got John's take on how do you pull together sales and marketing and some of the usual topics that I love to cover with our podcast guests. So a little bit about John um, before we dive straight into the conversation. Um, John, as I mentioned, is Chief Revenue Officer for Domain. Um, Domain is a leading Australian property marketplace. If you haven't come across them, I've been on the property hunt recently, so I've been glued to their app on my phone and find it very easy to use and love it. Um, but John joined Domain just over a year ago, actually, in September 2022. And before that, he was out of California um, working for Uber um, and was their global director of account management. Since joining Domain, um, John's really been focusing on how he's accelerating Domain's marketplace strategy across residential, commercial, developer, media, and agent solutions business, as well as their go-to-market sales operations and customer experience teams. So John has a massive, massive remit, which we tap into in the conversation. Um, before that, John has also worked for Google and spent 12 years with Google um, and held various roles there, looking at their go-to-market leadership roles and also Google's cloud multi-billion dollar um, partner sales team. Um, he's also worked before that for McKinsey. And I actually noticed that some of his experience from McKinsey shone through as well. So John has a really, really vast background and experience, which really comes to bear in this conversation um, and how he's navigated that high growth journey for a number of different co companies across all different countries in the world. So sit back, grab your coffee, grab your pad and pen and tune in. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast. This week, our guest is John Fung from Domain. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Abby. It's so great to be here. Uh, and thank you for having me. I have been very, very excited about this one because you have quite the epic history and career <laughs> history um, and worked for some of the most phenomenal companies in the world. So I am really, really excited for our audience to just try and pull together some of the pieces and common threads and things that you've seen for success. Um, so I'm going to 
dive straight in with that. So, so my understanding is you've worked with the likes of Uber, you've worked with Google, obviously now Domain. So you've yeah. worked with some really high growth, incredible companies. Have you spotted common themes for success, common themes for growth, common themes for high performance sales? Is there a common thread between those companies? Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And I would actually think the, the thread I see in, in these high performance companies on the sales side is it's a paradox. And the paradox is every great salesperson is unique. They have a way of connecting with the customer. They have a way of understanding the product. They bring their own particular stick, their own particular thing, you know, to the table. And you wanna, you wanna, you wanna make that amazing. You wanna, you wanna beautify that. You wanna make sure that people understand that and feel the freedom to kind of sell and manage the customers as they see fit. But all great sales organizations ultimately scale through systems. And the way I think about bringing those paradoxes together is my job is to take the best bits of all the people I see out there, the way they connect with folks, the way they research the product, the way they manage their pipeline, and try and make that systemic so that when people come to the table, uh, when people are here, we can bring the best out of them, but they can get the best out of everyone else as well. Yeah, I love that. In terms of systems, um, talk to us a little bit about that. Is that putting together... Is each company you've worked with had their own sales process that you have then built out and the systems support it? Or are there really common threads that if you went to any company, you would put a very similar sales system in place? Or is, does it tend to be more bespoke, but more niche? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, every sale follows the same basic logical funnel, you know, from awareness to interest to decision to action. And that is cascaded towards a three, four, five, six or seven process in Salesforce or HubSpot, whatever it is, there is a unifying set of themes, even if the graduation steps might look different. So I do think there are very common threads. I do think, though, the nature of the sale can be very different in different companies. You know, for example, with Domain, we're very, very lucky. We're an established brand for many, many decades. The people who've been using us, particularly in our strongholds of the capital cities, particularly like Sydney and Melbourne, uh, they, they know us. They know who we are. They know our audience. They trust the brand. And so that's a very different kind of sale, if you will. It's actually more of an account management. It's all about trust being an essential partner. When I was at Google Cloud back in the early days, this is selling the, the monetized version of Gmail and Docs or things like that. People know about the product, but they have no idea that it's a paid product. So a lot of what you're doing is awareness. You're penetrating new fields. And that's a very, very different kind of sale. You're still leveraging some measure of trust, but you're trying to create the relationship rather than cultivate the relationship that's already there. Mm. And what about Uber? Because Uber is always an interesting one that attracts a lot of attention. I think there's always curiosity around Uber. Yeah, Uber is a fascinating company. I'm very proud to have worked at Uber and the work they're doing around the world. The, the part that I helped run was called Uber for Business. So basically Uber for corporate travel. And the way to think about that is many people use Uber uh, you know, for their corporate travel. But what Uber does, and this is the, the, the group that I was running, is sell a version of that where it just makes it really easy to expense, uh, whether it's food or meals or rides. It integrates with your expense systems like Concur, and it means that you can manage the permissions centrally. Uh, so it's a feature that we were selling on top of the core Uber product. And so what we were trying to do is everyone knew Uber by that stage. It was already the most expensed item you know, in the business world. But they didn't know that, you know, in having a contractual relationship with Uber for business, they could make their employees' lives a lot easier. So a lot of us were selling the benefits of doing that versus just having people expense it the way they normally would. Yeah, interesting. That's so interesting. So 
what do you think have been some of the most impactful sales strategies that you've built? Because that's you've just given us three very, very different examples from domain yeah. to Uber uh, to Google, um, different stages of business, you know, very, very different. What do you think have been some of the most ex- um, impactful sales strategies that you've sort of deployed in your time? Yeah, there's a few that comes to mind. I think that the biggest thing you can do is, uh, you know, invest in your people. And this is a theme I'll come back to, but the biggest sales strategy for me is having your people understand that you are investing in them. For me, I, I never dreamed I'd end up in sales. I, I, I like selling things, but I kind of fell into it. I was at Google for a while. I was in marketing. Then I was in technical operations. And then a sales job came up. I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I could be a sales manager and end up 15 years later. I, I love it. But for me, the reason I got into sales was not to be a lifelong salesperson, which is a great activity too, but as a stepping stone to senior leadership. So hopefully one day being a CEO, uh, they often say the CEO is the chief sales officer. So for me, that's a big value proposition for myself as sales is a way of learning. And I want to make sure that whoever works for me is one of the you know, 300 sellers I have on my commercial team today, that they know they're getting an education. They feel like they're getting as much out of their experience with Domain as they are giving back to Domain and our customers. So number one, the biggest sales strategy is do your people know they're getting value? And that's investing in training, investing in a methodology that will serve them, not just while they're with Domain or whatever company you're leading, but as long as they are in business, not even in sales, that they're going to become more marketable the more they work for you and the more they learn. But Mm. the sales strategy I invest the most is really actually influencing product and marketing. As a salesperson, I am nothing without having a great product and having a great audience that's been acquired by marketing. And so my biggest job, actually, as a chief revenue officer today at Domain is to make sure that we, our customers, are getting what they need from our product and marketing departments. And I'm very much the conduit of that, of representing, of advocating, of trying to figure out how to get product and marketing the funding to create kick-ass products so those things are getting better and the value proposition is always improving. Those are actually the two primary sales strategies that, that I would encourage any person in sales to be employing. There are specific ones we can talk to as well, but they're the two big ideas. So you have just hit a big, big note for me. So um, we at Sales Redefined are all about bringing sales and marketing together. And we sort of, we, we always use the word marketing and say, you know, there's got to be that seamless between sales and marketing. And it's kind of interesting and quite scary to sort of still see the research out there that most sales and marketing companies are not, they don't communicate regularly. They're not aligned on KPIs. They're not aligned on culture. It's fascinating to me because you mentioned, you, you know, you've done a marketing role in the past, now your sales, and then your answer to that question around how you're collaborating with, with marketing. How do you bring together sales and marketing? How do you end the great divide? <laughs> no, it's true, right? And 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 uh, what I particularly the product that I, that I sell, which is you know the power of the domain listing to help people find the next home and to help people selling their house find you know potential buyers. It's nothing without audience. It's nothing without audience. All we are doing is bringing great buyers to the table to to look at people's houses. And so that is the primary thing I'm selling when I meet out there with real estate agents and customers. And so the marketing is so important. So the first part is actually just having that mindset. I think a lot of sales leaders I met feel like they can control their own destiny. They can't. Actually, most of their destiny is laid out for them by the quality of their product and the quality of the audience. So number one, start with the mindset that actually sales is the bottom of the funnel. It's downstream from product and marketing. Therefore, it's going to be garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have confidence in what's coming down to you, then you've really got nothing. Number two, I often ask an interview question, which is the following. Um, How do you perform or how do you get what you need when you have influence without authority? 
right? Because this is what anyone in any matrix company, any large company to do. You don't control the chips unless you're the CEO, right? So you're always influencing someone else who doesn't have to do what you want them to do, right? And for me, the answer that I'm looking for is always the same. I want people to start with understanding what other goals, what excites that other group. So I'm in sales, right? What do marketing care about? What do they care about professionally, personally? What are their goals? And two things will happen. Number one, when you put yourself in someone else's shoes after having the mindset that they are important, you cannot help but develop empathy to go, oh, wow, actually, their job is really hard. Their marketing automation system is not quite up to scratch. They don't have any of the marketing dollars to do the kind of brand and performance marketing they want to do. It naturally develops empathy and you step into their world. But secondly, by actually saying, wow, what do I need to do to fulfill their goals? It will actually force you to force the company to figure out, like, are sales and marketing goals actually aligned? Because to me, this is actually the biggest issue. What we need in a company is a single set of goals of which different functions take different parts of the funnel. But what you discover if you actually enter in, oh, well, actually, what are marketing's goals? What are my goals? Where do they overlap? And where do they actually contradict each other? You will then potentially come to the conclusion that actually we're not set up for success here that actually there needs to be a CMO, a CRO, and a CEO conversation of can we get those goals aligned. Those two things, take on that mindset of empathy and then actually trying to align those goals because you realize you have influence but not authority, that takes care of 80% of the work. Once you start there, it's very hard to not work together because our destinies are intertwined. I love that. You are very much speaking my language. <laughs> at, a, at a practical sort of day-to-day -day level, um, how do you keep, alignment ongoing is it regular meetings is it shared kpis um you know what is it at a practical day-to-day -day level to to keep that going sure so i'm a big believer in two things that start here one is that role modeling uh that what you do at the top ultimately cascades to the bottom and if you're not doing it at the top then the rest of the company isn't going to do it too and number two it's hard to fake authentic relationships and so for me just putting that to practice uh I'm a really big fan of both our CMO and our chief product officer. Our CMO, she's been here about six months. She was the CMO at Comsec before, uh, Beck Daly. She's amazing. She's brilliant. Uh, she's got such ideas at the table. Uh, she's, she's great with the carrot and she's great with the stick. And she really wants to take us to a new level at Domain. And so for me, what I'm doing when she came on board six months ago is I'm investing a lot in that relationship. I'm investing a lot in understanding her world, her background, what makes her tick, what she wants to do, what she like, is like personally, what's her family, what are her interests, because so much of a great relationship is that. It's the professional and the personal, and obviously, you know, reciprocating the same. And very similar with my relationship with our chief product officer, Nathan Bumby. And so, number one, I want to have an authentic relationship with them. Not that it means that we're going to agree on everything or we get on fine and dandy dandy. But it means that we at least trust each other's intentions so that when the proverbial hits the fan and when we have clashes, we know we're coming with good intentions. We naturally step into each other's world. So that's kind of the first thing. It starts with the relationship and it starts at the top. But the second thing, as you say, we need to have good systems that encourage alignment and that flag where there is a lack of alignment. So that goal setting piece of, OK, here are my goals. Let me go up the funnel. I need to generate this much revenue. Therefore, how many, how much pipeline, how many leads, how many web visitors, how much advertising do we need to spend based on historical assumptions? You're basically comparing goals to just check that it all lines up, right? Mm. So that's the second you go through, right? Great, relied as people, are relied as goals. And then if we are or when we are aligned on goals, then it's about having that system, that kind of red, yellow, green traffic light system of, okay, great. If you hit these goals, it probably means that I'm going to hit these goals. So how often are we looking to see if we hit those goals? 
Again, nothing fancy. You can do it out of a Google spreadsheet, right? Or you can do it out of something fancy. Either way, you're just trying to create a rhythm, not necessarily to solve the problem, but flag where something's not quite going right to have that discussion. Uh, and hopefully by the time you have those discussions, you build up the trust. Those, those discussions are happening not in an adversarial way, but out of friendship, out of mutual respect, out of joint problem solving. And you find the team then jump on board. I've had three conversations this week. I don't know what is going on this week about <laughs> people who have been at expos and they've then got all these leads from these expos, as an example, right. and the sales team then haven't followed up on the leads that the marketing team got from the expos. And then you're not going to get an ROI and you know the rest of the story. So it's then sort of you've got the role modeling and the alignment at the top and the mutual respect at the top and, and you're driving the bus in the same direction. And then at that point, practical day-to-day level of follow-up on the leads from marketing or the, the very, very basic level. Do you find that then naturally falls into place because you put the groundwork in and you've role modeled first? So I would say at Domain, this is a work in progress. Right? It's a work in progress. We're, we're, we're working on this very problem right now. We haven't solved it. We're getting there. I think what I, what I think we have done well, and, and this is what I've been managed to do in, in the past lives I've had at Uber at Google, is when you have a funnel where no one controls the whole funnel, Right? But the whole funnel matters because any leak is going to leak the whole thing. You need to have people care about the whole funnel. So mm. I need marketing to care about not just generating leads, but ultimately is the, are they getting processed towards the end? And for my team, I need to make sure they care not just at the sale, but all the leads and every step of the process, the customer is getting a good experience. That's the first thing. Yeah. People care about the whole thing. When you do that, you'll quickly discover the same issue that you've just described, that generally salespeople don't get back to leads in a timely manner. But of course, once you scratch that itch, right, there's a few reasons behind it. Generally because it's quality, their quality is unpredictable. Generally because the way the salespeople organize their time doesn't make it conducive to an SLA environment where they can respond quickly, right? Yeah. But again, that the whole idea that you're winning once you start having those discussions. You're losing if marketing's going, well, I threw it over the fence, why don't you do it? And sales go, I don't have time for this. These suck anyway, right? So what you want to do is create that joint measure of collaboration because once you do that, you'll come to some very predictable outcomes. One is you'll create a team called demand management, which is there and it's more call center-like. It's there to respond very quickly because they know a response between five minutes and 30 minutes is a 50% better conversion rate. Or you'll change the way that salespeople are doing leads, right, in order that they are structuring their day so that they have got this window where they're going to rapidly respond to leads and you're going to SLA of an hour or 24 hours or whatever it is. Or marketing will change the way they qualify, potentially outsource the qualification, so they're only throwing over things that have a 30% or more chance of conversion. All these are valid responses. I've implemented all of these things. The important thing is the trust, the collaboration that leads to that joint problem solving. Yeah. And I agree. There's so, you know, I've sat the sales side of the fence most of my career and then more recently sort of also seen the marketing side of the fence. And there's so many, there are valid reasons for it and why it happens, but it's the age old yeah. problem that pretty much every company is trying to fix. And I, I'm finding it fascinating how, you know, Unilever recently announced um, they weren't going to have the CMO role anymore. They oh. were going to actually bring um, the marketing and the e-commerce function under one roof. So like you're talking about, there's actually that um, alignment and responsibility there. So it wasn't sort of divided in multiple directions. So I'm finding it fascinating to see how people are tackling this problem. Yeah, you know, that, that uh, we had actually a similar model at, at Google, the CMO reporting to the chief business officer. I would just say in any complex company like a Unilever or a Google or even a domain, we have brilliant people working hard who have strong opinions there's always going to be influence of that authority. And if it doesn't happen at that top level, it's going to happen at the level below. 
right? The salesperson, the chief sales officer isn't going to be the same report to the chief e-commerce or marketing officer or whatever it is, even if they have the same C-level executive. Uh, and so that skill set of really developing empathy, trying to see what the other person needs, you know, forcing alignment and getting to alignment where there's misalignment, identifying it, those skills are not going to go away regardless of the organizational structure. Mm. Interesting. So I want to move you to a question around what you've seen change. So um, I hate to mention the C word of COVID, particularly because <laughs> I've just had it. <laughs> so we're coming off the back of that. Um, but I'm really curious by, I think COVID has essentially accelerated sales by, you know, five odd years. You look at some of what's happened in the e-commerce and they've sort of talked about it being a 10 year acceleration. So I think it's really interesting to watch how COVID has actually changed the game. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see from your lens, you know, what have you seen that is now working today or some changes today or maybe what's coming up in the future because of the sort of digital disruption that we've had? You know, I think I'll have two answers to that. One is actually a bit with the premise of the question, and the other one is what I have seen change. Because I think COVID has changed a lot of things, but maybe not as much as people expected. For example, I've invested in a company called Shopify, right, which is uh, you know very much the, the anti-Amazon or the Amazon for everyone else who is in Amazon. And recently, they've had a lot of problems uh, in, in their company, precisely because they overestimated the impact on COVID. Or to phrase what what the, the CEO report in the, the most weekly the most recent earnings report, um, they thought that COVID had accelerated the adoption to e-commerce, which in the US was like around fifteen percent of all transactions, accelerated twenty percent on route to kind of thirty percent longer term. But what happened was it temporarily accelerated and then kind of went back to the same trajectory it was already on, right? So. There is some debate as to how much COVID has permanently changed things versus temporarily changed things. And some companies, including Shopify, which I invest in at a much higher price than today, definitely wore some of the, the brunt of people overestimating how much that would be. I would say in our world, we have primarily selling digital listings. So we've always been a digital product. Uh, we sell that a lot through face-to-face. Uh, we go up to real estate agents who recommend to their people selling houses, they should use domain. That has very much been a face-to-face relational journey. I would say COVID has not changed that that much. People still want to see you. I travel almost every week for work. A lot of it's staring people in the face and saying, hey, look, what if you got products? What can we change? What can we do better? How can we serve your customers you know, even better? Um, now, I think what it has made is it's more acceptable to do more things by video. And it certainly has raised the expectations of hybrid work. So our office is typically less than half full each day because we want to encourage people to balance that with their lives. So I would say it's definitely changed from a corporate perspective in terms of flexibility that people have with their lives. And that's been a wonderful thing. I think from a selling point of view, I've seen a lot less change, permanent change than I thought I would. Uh, in the sense that we've gone to a world where video is more acceptable, but certainly people still prefer face-to-face. That's interesting because you're probably more that side of the fence than what I've heard from a lot of people. A lot of people we're speaking to, there's still some face-to-face, but it's probably still a minority. If you were to carve up your diary, the majority would still be sitting in virtual. Do you think part of that's because you're working with a lot of real estate agents where they do need to be in the office? They physically need to be there to go and show someone the house and and so on. I mean, there's ways you can do it obviously digitally now as well, Um, Uh but it's kind of got more of a traditional office-based model. I think there's two things about real estate that probably make it more more the face-to-face side of the spectrum versus many of the, the, the guests that you might have. I mean, two things. Real estate is a very, very local business. 
What happens in these postcodes will be entirely different in terms of the market dynamics, who's successful, the brands that can differ from one, one block you know, to another. And so that means that the buyers, the sellers, and the agents you know, and, and suppliers like us are very, very concentrated. And that probably is a much higher face-to-face -face likelihood than, great, you're selling to Australia and uh, you're buying on behalf of Australia. And the second thing is, given the very large size of the transactions, I mean, a typical house in Australia is you know, a million bucks. Some of these transactions are millions, tens of millions of dollars. There is a high propensity, a high need for trust in these transactions because uh, people are spending a lot of money and therefore probably a high desire for face-to-face -face relative to something like maybe a SaaS subscription where you know, you're not outlaying that much at, you know, per transaction and therefore your perceived need for interpersonal trust is less. Yeah, interesting. So you haven't had to make any real changes to your sales team now, sort of out the other side of COVID. For you guys, it's all back to back to normal. Hate, hate to say normal, but you know what I mean. It's, it's, you haven't had to make any dramatic changes to the team. Yeah, I mean, certainly during COVID, you know, navigating the world of vaccine mandates and that was complicated. Now that's mostly dissipated. Uh, typically, it's the same. We expect our you know, our account managers to visit and, and service the customers in the way that they would like to. Now, that is more, much more of a combination of face-to-face -face and video than it was before, but still, most of them are seeing their customers face-to-face -face most of the time, I'd say. Yeah. So you mentioned that, obviously, um, Domain is a digital platform, yeah. and you guys are obviously well and truly on that path. The one thing we're finding interesting right now is companies actually looking at, okay, how do they take their first steps towards digital and perhaps yeah. traditional companies that haven't had to go down that path? What's been some of your learnings there of, you know, working with a digital platform, digital product and sort of going on that digital journey? Well, I would say, so just to, to qualify, you know, I've been with Domain for about a year now. Uh, we have not changed that much in that year. So I've inherited what has been happening over the previous few decades. And Domain's digitization probably happened 15 years ago. Uh, primarily, for those who grew up in Sydney and Melbourne, these were lift-outs in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, uh, you know, the, the Australian Financial Review. Uh, primarily, we grew up with those things. They were the classifieds. They were the editorial articles. And we still have those. Those are, those are fantastic products. But now the most of the business is digital, is selling the digital listing, which people you know, look at through the app or through the website. So that digitization process happened 10 to 15 years ago. So in terms of our customers and real estate agents purchasing through digital means as opposed to paper contracts, that's very, very old school uh, for us. So I've not been part of that journey at all. I would say that for one of the products we sell is effectively a DocuSign for agents. Uh, it's called Real-Time Agent. And when you're selling real estate, there's like all these paper forms to fill in. We effectively digitize that process in the same way DocuSign has done that you know, for other contracts. So what we are trying to do actually is help them digitize their office. And we're helping them digitize their customers and get customers, uh, you know, um, to, to make that change. And the way I think about this is it's very similar to any innovation curve where, where you're having to help people cross the chasm, you know, as the book is called. When you're asking people to change a long set of things, like, oh, like, we used to do everything on paper. I feel secure about paper. Now we have to do it over the, over the cloud through my mobile phone. That feels scary or through an iPad. You're basically trying to solve this basic equation. What is the value in terms of saving, efficiency, productivity of the new way, subtracted the cost, the risk of not doing it the way you used to. And for us, a lot of that sales selling that we're doing to help agents and to help agencies help their agents make the changes, hey, like before you had to bring a stack of paper with you and you had to physically be there to sign. And now you can close a deal at 10 p.m. on a Friday, lying with your cell phone in your bed. 
You can help someone in Europe, close the one in Australia, and you can do it you know, with a minimum fuss. And what you're trying to do is sell them on the benefits of the digital platform and really speak against some of the risks and how other people have done it, including people like yourself, to help people cross that chasm. And that's very much what we have a whole team dedicated to helping agencies come to the platform, help their agents make that journey. So we do a lot of that. It's funny because it sounds really simple, but I know actually what a beast it is. I um, sold my property back in the UK and they were trying to get me to do all of it um, as in actually sign. And I can't even remember where I was at the time I was traveling. I was like, I can't. Can I do it via HelloSign? Can I do it via DocuSign? Can I do any of those options? And it was like an absolute hard no. And so you think that something that's quite well accepted and quite acceptable you would be able to do and actually it wasn't it was an beast and for me the customer experience w- was horrific and it actually put me off because it's like well, if i was going to go through this again then that actually would probably be a non-negotiable for me as a decision um criteria because i need someone who is easy to work with when i'm not physically in that location and if you translate yeah. that to all different aspects of business now. We're not always in the same location. We're not always in the same place. Many of us are not in the office. So actually some of those traditional procedures and processes actually are quite hard now because you're not set up next to a printer or, you know, whatever it might be. So you do need some of that digitization. So yeah, I need you to go speak to my real estate agent in the UK. (laughs) No, it's it's interesting. I think that's why at Domain, we're grateful that we have a, you know, we're a portal, we're a marketplace where people can buy and sell property. That's fantastic. Uh, but we're really excited about the role we can play in helping this whole industry digitize. It's a massive industry. It's one of the biggest industries in Australia, in every country. But a lot of the processes are kind of stuck in the 1970s. It hasn't changed as much as you might imagine many other things, whether it's Uber or Google have revolutionized those industries. So we're pretty excited about the chance to do that and, you know, help people live life, you know, in the 21st century, which is closing a home, looking for homes without having to do all the the in-person, on-foot stuff that was happening before. Yeah. Do you think there's any, you've obviously been down that change path before, right? And you've been through for a few companies where you're kind of ahead of the curve on that change. Have you found there's any common themes there around helping people adopt and embrace the change? Because as humans, it's that book of like, who moved my cheese? We don't want to, we don't always want we don't always want the change um, and change can feel scary and daunting. And like you said, particularly in industries where, well, it's always been this way and it's been this way since, you know, years and years and years ago since we started. Have you found there's a common theme there around helping people to navigate change? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think as long as I'm working, I'll probably be in industries or jobs where there's change. I think it's it's what I grew up with. I've been, you know, as a Google for 13 years, like just things constantly changing constantly changing new products new markets new competitors uh new laws all these things are causing change so much so that i think change management is probably which one of the prime skills that any executive brings to the table because there aren't too many companies that are standing still even if you're a bank or a grocery store where you think you know they've got change around digitization legal uh comp- competitors come to the market what are they going to do and so this currency change management i mean i think it's the thing where where, where folks and, and your listeners need to keep getting good at and so for me my change from playbook is this. Number one, it starts with empathy. Recognize and imagine how hard it is to change. And we might think we're dynamic and young and like we're used to change and we love change. And I think a lot of great executives do. They see change as opportunity. But there are places where people that move our cheese, that scares us, whether it's moving house or a different life stage or our parents getting old or things like that. We are connected to things. And there are some things where we invite change and there are some things where we're scared of it where we like the security of the way things have been. So I think part number one is having the empathy to attach yourself to that and go, oh, yeah, 
I might be very happy to change systems because that's my thing. But imagine if someone thought about systems, how I feel about my family or my house or health or things of that nature. I think number two, change management also comes through trust. I said, people are making that equation of like, are the benefits of change outweighing the costs and the risks of change? And the way that people value those things is through a paradigm of trust. Do I trust the person who's talking about the benefits? And do I trust the person who's trying to mitigate those costs that what they're saying is actually true? And so that's why I think relationship management, whether you are someone in sales trying to help a customer make a change, or whether you're someone in management trying to help someone who's been in your company make a change to a different methodology, a different way of selling, it starts with that currency of trust. Do they buy into you first, and then they'll buy into change? The last mm -hmm. part is, of course, having a real framework for like how to de-risk it for people, laying out the steps, showing all the things that need to happen, and how you're going to hold their hand that journey. I think a lot of what I learned as a consultant early in my career is to take a large problem and break into component parts. That's how things become solvable, and that's ultimately how you generate trust. Because even if this whole change is scary, the 50 steps that's underneath it, we can de-risk all of those, and it's still a risk, but it feels like less of a risk because we're doing 50 things we've done before rather than one big thing we've never done before. And so that's the journey, I think, of a leader, whether you're a leader as a salesperson leading a customer or whether you're a manager you know, leading your sales, sales direct reports. Yeah, I think it's so important right now because, you know, we can't really sit here and go, well, this is the way it's always been done about anything. You know, I had a conversation with someone the other day and they said, I just don't want to use LinkedIn and this is the way I've always done it. And so whether it's about something small or something big, um, I, I do think we're, you know, we're, change is the only constant and it's therefore how do you navigate and how do you go through some of that path and I think that's interesting that you just talked about and unpacked a little bit around building trust because you mentioned trust several times throughout this conversation as sort of being one of the keys and it's interesting in the latest research that you know trust has always been you know what are the top things as sellers that we have to build? But even now it's showing it's even increased in importance if it was even possible that it could increase in importance. <laughs> so I think that's interesting that for you, that seems to be a common thread to most of your answers is around actually starting with building trust. Yeah, yeah, totally. And by the way, trust is not always interpersonal, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, typically you buy into the person before you buy into the product. But if I take Google, most interactions people with Google are not with a person, but there's a high degree of trust. There's a degree of trust that when you type a search query into the search box, that it's going to come back with high speed, high fidelity, and high authenticity. And a lot of the job of sales is to figure out when to generate trust through in-person interactions, when to generate trust through really quick phone or virtual interactions, and when to generate trust through self-serve or automated interactions as well. Mm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that around high performance sales because I ask everyone this question of what do you think it takes to build to play a high performance game and obviously we just talked about trust potentially being one component around high performance sales you talked at the start yeah. around investing in people and so on but what do you think it is for you having seen all different types of sales teams what do you think it is for you um, to help someone play a high performance sales game? Yeah. I remember when I was a consultant back at McKinsey many years ago, we had this framework for high performance and it stuck with me ever since. And there's basically four components, you know, to how do you create a high performance team? And number one is, is role modeling. Basically, can people see other high performers around them and are the high performers getting celebrated? And this is stuff like having a, a culture of having a leaderboard where you elevate people at the top, even simple things like newsletters or people sharing in, in all hands is what they've done. I think it's really important that people see role models, that people see that people progress. Like we talk about career development as a salesperson. 
But if people actually made the the the, the loop from sales assistant to, to to account manager to sales manager to director to national director, when people see those role models around them, it really breeds a high performance culture. In the same way, like if you're in a tennis academy or Olympics academy, and you see people who are in your shoes go to the Olympics or or, or the Grand Slams, that gives you hope. Oh well, I could do that. No matter where I am today, I can perform my best. I can make that jump. Number two is actually around training. You know, and we, it's something we heavily invest in here. Uh, we're, we're working with a consulting company to generate a new methodology. We'll put everyone through, you know, a multi-day training program customized just, you know, for domain here. A lot of it is the signal of the investment that you are spending time and money investing in people. But a lot of it is just capability. Ultimately, wherever people are at, they can get better. They can get better through osmosis or through making errors. But a big part of getting better is just sharing best practice in a way that's engaging, uh, repeated, and tested. And that's how people get better. The third thing is systems. You know, we talked about measurement before. Uh, and it's really, really important that people get that feedback of, oh, wow, I did this thing that was good. This has resulted in a, a, better, a better outcome for the business. And they can see themselves in real time. And that's why things such as whether it's Salesforce dashboards or Tableau dashboards or whatever you might use. And is not just having a proliferation of the right kind of metrics, but also different metrics at different stages. Obviously, we measure things such as dollars. But dollars are very lag indicator. How do you measure pipeline, visits, calls? These are all things that provide that virtuous cycle of action, measurement, gratification. You're trying to build those habits, those, those psychological nudges so that people are doing things that are in line with high performance and you're just helping them you know, get into that virtuous cycle. And the last part is incentives, right? Ultimately, you need to understand where you're at at the market. Are you like Google, which we aim to pay at the top 5%? Are you trying to pay in the top quartile, the top third of the market? Are you actually just trying to pay at towards the bottom of the market, but really high rewards you do really well? Each of them have a different strategy. They're all legitimate. It depends on your corporate culture. But you have to make sure that the incentives test is this. Is there enough incentive for a high performer to stay with you? That's the question we're asking. Because if there isn't, they probably won't. That doesn't mean it all has to be financial. Some of it could be developmental, educational grants, just really great management. But you have to make sure that it's in someone's actual vested interest you know, to stay with you. And what I find is creating a high-performance culture in a sales organization is the mastery of all those four things simultaneously. Role modeling, enablement, systems and processes, and incentives. If you miss one, it's not going to work. If you get all of them, you create a virtual cycle. That is really interesting. And I think that the last one's also really interesting right now where, you know, there's so much talk and hype about the great resignation, right? Whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of movement yeah. in the market right now. And you only have to look at LinkedIn for 30 seconds to see a lot of people moving and changing and so on. And so, you know, making sure that you can retain your top talent right now is so critical. Yeah, yeah. And I, I turn that challenge on its head. And Sometimes people misunderstand where I say this. So if anyone from Domain is listening, I'm not asking you to leave the company. I'm talking about how many <laughs> right? I encourage the people who work for me to look for other jobs. I encourage them to see themselves as a free agent, as someone who has a set of skills and abilities, and it's their responsibility, not just their obligation, but their responsibility to themselves and their family to be in the very best place that rewards them for that, whether that's a Domain, whether it's a Google, whether it's doing their own thing, whether it's otherwise. And the reason is this, I want picky people. I want picky people because it keeps me sharp. It means that I can't be complacent and go, well, you know, they probably couldn't get a job anywhere else, so we've got them. I want the very best people. And that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be a free agent so Domain has to work hard to keep me. And so to me, that's the culture I want to create. 
So the great resignation has obviously accelerated that. It's put a lot more pressure on companies to look at their REM, to look at their training programs, to look at the quality of their management. But to me, that's the world that I want to live in, and that's the bar that I want to be held accountable to. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good uh, turnaround. We'll make sure we sort of amplify the bit of no one from domain is is to resign. <laughs> <laughs> Please stay. Or if you're gonna if you're gonna leave, tell me what I need to do better to keep you. Because I think we have I've I've been lucky to inherit an amazing sales team here. Customers rave about the customer service and how much they care. And what I've tried to do in the methodology is take all the best bits and create that into something where everyone's exposed to the very best bits of people domain. But what that means is people have lots of options, and so I need to fight harder for it. So please let me know if you're ever thinking what I need to do better. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So we've just talked about, um, you know, for high performance salespeople, what is it that makes them play on their A game? What about for you personally? You know, you've had a phenomenal career. Um, what is it for you that that um, helps you play on your A game? Or do you have any non-negotiables that no matter how busy you get, you know, we were talking about before we went on air, if you've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old and we were talking about the daycare Sorry. germs and all the challenges that brings. Do you have non-negotiables that help you play at your best and help you build such an epic career? Oh, thank you, Abby, for your kind words. I would say a lot of my epic career was actually built at a stage of life where I probably didn't have that many non-negotiables. I'm not recommending that as a strategy because I think there's a real cost to that. But I would say it's only as I've gotten older and more progressed in life that the non-negotiables have come up. I think they're amazing, and I think they also make me a better person, a better father, and a better manager. But I must say, when I look back at my career, a lot of it wasn't negotiable. Sorry, there were not that many non-negotiables. I was kind of you know, happy to travel, work, do whatever it took. I actually think if I'd had more non-negotiables, uh, I probably would have been even more effective because some of the things I'm dealing with now is, you know, I have a tendency to say yes to a lot of stuff. I want to do things. I want to fight harder. And actually the skill that I need is to judge more what not to do, what to double down on and not to kind of like let a thousand roses bloom, but just put wood behind a very few number of arrows. So for me, what's forcing that to me today is number one, marriage. Marriage is a great way to stop with non-negotiables because you now have a new boss and that boss is much more important and her happiness is much more important than current boss. And so for me, I made a commitment very early on before I got married is I want to be much better at marriage than I am at my work. And I want to be really good at work. So I need to be really, really good at marriage. And number two, we've been blessed to have, you know, we've got two girls, two and three years old. We're right in the thick of that craziness. Uh, and for me, I want to be an amazing father. I want to be an amazing father. And no amount of work or success or fortune or status is worth even sacrificing any of that. So what does that mean? What you also need to do in as a manager is turn those not negotiables around family, around marriage, around health, around friends, into a system. I like to basically, I don't want to call them rules, maybe principles. For me, right now, I don't want to work more than 45 hours a week. And in the 45 hours, in the sorry, 100, 123 hours where I'm not working a week, I don't want to be thinking about work. I'll be as focused on family, on health, or sleeping for a lot of time as possible. And so once you start to draw lines in the sands like that, it actually produces a lot of non-negotiables. It puts limits on how much I can travel. I typically do day trips rather than kind of overnights, so I'll be back in time for dinner with family, right? It puts non-negotiables on how many meetings I can take on. I know I can only take on about 35 hours of meetings. I still have 10 hours to actually do stuff outside of that. If, I'm gonna, if, I, if I violate that, then I certainly can't live, live up to my 45 hours. It then puts, it makes, it makes me uh, produce, I don't say like, uh, criteria where I'm always assessing what a few people think. Are my children getting what I need? Is my wife getting what I need? Are my, for my parents, my family getting what they need? And I need to, in a sense, assess how they're going and if they're getting what they need. And if not, I need to question the system itself. So these are the non-negotiables that come into play. I actually think that even though I would work less than I did if I was 
kind of like childless and, and partnerless, but it means that ultimately I'll be a much better judge and a much better manager and a much better leader. Yeah, I think it makes, uh, like for me, you know, I've got three-year-olds, a so very similar age, and yeah. um, it makes you more focused because it's like, well, I don't have a choice whether I'm going to go and do pickup tonight or not. I can't <laughs> stay back in, unfortunately. Um, I can't stay back in the office, so therefore I have to be brutally focused with my time because you've got a hard stop there. So you can't yeah. have that, you know, extra long coffee break or chat or, you know, <laughs> do do all the things that you want to, like I'm, I'm the same, I want to say yes to everything. You just have to become unbelievably focused because you've got a hard stop there and you've got to be focused of what's, what are the highest value tasks. My, my team probably go crazy because I'm always saying, you know, what is your superpower? What's the highest value task that you can do that only you can do and in that time available? That is a great phrase. That's actually, um, I've been writing my development plan. I, I have one and I go through with my coach. And I encourage each of my team to have one. What you said is actually just right in my list. The principle is I should do what only I can do. And therefore, what I'm doing that someone else could be doing or doesn't need to be done shouldn't be done. And that's hard. That is hard for people like us who've had a lot of our success because we were everywhere doing everything and super responsive. And we're having to unlearn that. That's very much my challenge right now. But what I need to do if I want to be a great father and a great husband. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting challenge and an interesting change. You mentioned there around a coach. Um, has that been something that has also been instrumental to your career? Have you have you worked with coaches and mentors throughout? Yeah, yeah, I've been very lucky, I guess, for a few reasons in my career. I think number one, I've always had mentors who I look up to. Uh, I had the privilege of of going to business school in the states uh, at Stanford. Uh, there's a group of 10, 10 men actually, and we were pretty close there. A lot of us lived together. We mentor a lot each other. We still have a weekly call where we chat about work and family and how things are going. Uh, and we reach out to each other, particularly if we're looking for jobs or looking for promotion. We'll typically run bounce things off each other. So I believe a lot in peer mentorship, and that's a group that we've had for 15 years now. I'll be very grateful in my career. A lot of people took me under, under, under their wing. I think part of it is because I'm like, I'm bouncy, I'm cheerful, I, I really want to learn. I really believe I can learn a lot from people. I look, a lot, I look up to the people who are more progressive than me in life. And so there was a lot of willingness there. And I think about 10 years ago when I reached a certain level at Google when I was a global director, they actually paid for a coach for me to have. And I've had coaching ever since. This is almost 10 years now. Uh, and even though I've changed countries and changed jobs, uh, either retaining or changing coaches, uh, I found coaching so useful uh, in terms of having that accountability, having that input. But you don't have to have a paid coach. That's just one route to it. A lot of companies like Domain have mentoring programs. Uh, you can develop your own peer mentoring. A lot of it helps when you yourself become a mentor and a coach. Uh, that's the best way to learn, I feel, selfishly as well. So having being serious and just trying to dedicate one hour a week to that stuff, I found crucial uh, to accelerate and, and embed my learning. Yeah, I completely agree. And as someone who's sort of, I spoke to my mentor yesterday, and sometimes it's something you've been going around and around and around in your head on. And because they're sort of external, and they're that one step removed, they can almost sometimes help you simplify it in 30 seconds, what you've been going around for days. I don't know, that's just my experience, but I find it really helps that external person. Totally. Very, very useful. Yeah. So you've mentioned there, you know, love of learning um, and, you know, that that definitely shines through. My final question that I have for you that I ask everybody is, do you have a favorite business book that you recommend? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that one of my habits has been to listen to audiobooks. One of my habits has been I've been spent the last 10 years trying to get fit. Uh, I really try to get addicted to running. And I found the only way that I could solve the boredom of running is by having media playing in the background. So when I was a treadmill, I was watching a show. 
And when I'm running in, you know, the outside, which I prefer now, it's audiobooks. So I love audiobooks. Uh, and I've, I think as a result, I've listened to 20 or 30 books each year for the last few years. My favorite book for now is a, is a book that's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There by a, an American coach called Marshall Goldsmith. And the title really summarizes, I think, our challenge, whether you're in sales, whether you're in management, whether you're in sales management, uh, whatever got us here, hard work, having not negotiables, travel, long hours typically won't get us to where we want to get to, whether that's in life or in terms of management skill. And in that book, he goes through a lot of the things that successful people suffer from. So for me right now, it's there's one where you feel like you always have to add value. Someone says, that's a great idea. You should also try this. That's one big thing. Or being competitive, but too competitive, where you actually feel like you need to win all the time rather than kind of letting others you know, run with the show. So it goes through a checklist of 20 attributes like this, and I think I ticked off seven or eight of them, which I'm currently working on. And it, the basic encouragement is, hey, you've been successful. Great. Celebrate that. You don't have to dismiss that. But there's something stopping you from getting to the next, next level. Identify what it is. It'll keep changing. And then work on it. Be accountable to the people around you and to your coach on it. And then when you get there, try again. Uh, and that's very much where I'm at right now. And whether you read the book or just kind of think of that principle, I found it very, very helpful to remind myself. I am going to have to check that one out. I'm a bit of a book junkie, um, so I haven't read that one or listened to that one. Um, so I'm going to have to check that out. I actually tried cool. that with running because uh, I'm half marathon training at the moment. But I found oh, I kept on wanting to um, stop to write down notes and I found myself almost like stopping on my phone to like write down a note. I'm like, this is not, you know, if you're trying to half marathon train, stopping to take notes is not really going to be very helpful. So I ended up having the audio book that I would listen to and then order the physical book so I could go back and like highlight certain things that I wanted to capture. And I was like, this is, this is definitely not the most effective way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, the book companies must love you. That's uh, that's fantastic. I keep my postman in business. I really do. <laughs> Right. Well, John, you have been an absolutely incredible guest. Um, I've absolutely loved that conversation. Thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, um, I'd obviously want to connect with Domain. Um, yeah, yeah. Where do we find you? Where, where do we come connect? Just please look on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest. Uh, you know, I don't know if we include my profile in the show notes. Please reach out. Uh, have it have a chat. Obviously, if you're looking to, to make use of Domain's products, obviously keen to have a chat. But if you're just looking to, to progress your career in sales or in management, uh, keen to be of help. So thank you for listening. And Abby, thanks for hosting such a great podcast. It was great to look at some of the guests you've had before on the themes. I think you're providing such an important service and I think uh, the most important function. So I uh, really, 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 really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. All right. I'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to receive the inside scoop on what is working right now in our highest performing campaigns, and likewise, what are the pitfalls to avoid directly to your inbox, then simply visit insidescoop.salesredefined.com.au to make sure that you receive our fortnightly newsletter with everything that you need to know to stay ahead of the pack directly to your inbox. And finally, before you leave us, don't forget to subscribe to Redefining Sales Podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a comment or perhaps share it with a friend or colleague who you know would enjoy it. We'll see you next time. Thank you.